It is interesting to me, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about the prophecy of Daniel. I told you about my time in, in, um, in Israel on our honeymoon and just sharing with this uh, Orthodox Jew that sort of came over us uh, trying to cover Loretta because she did not have long sleeves. And, um, and as I explained to him the Daniel prophecy, which they are not able to read themselves unless they have proper people to explain it to them. And, and that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is when, Ab when actually um, Daniel began to seek God in order to find out what he was doing. And then it says that there was a big battle in the spiritual realm and that Gabriel, the archangel, came to him and he says, I have come to give you understanding about the things that are going to take place. And he says, and he gave him a certain amount of weeks, and, he certain, and, and those weeks uh, were times of uh, seven years apiece for a Jew. A week is seven, seven years. And, um, and, when you, and he said, from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, comes, it'll be, I'll interpret it for you, 483 years. that gave the date that the Messiah would arrive. And if you do the math, it's right at the time of Jesus. But it's interesting because it was Gabriel that was given the order to inform Daniel of what would take place. And so it's interesting in Luke chapter 1, verse, um, verse, um, verse there, 26. Now in the sixth month, in this, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city called, city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled, I bet, at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and to his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? How can this be if I've never been with a man? How in the world could it be that I am going to have a child? Now, this will sound fantastic. 
and would sound illogical and crazy unless God had said to Isaiah 700 years prior that God was going to give a sign to the world. God, through the prophet Isaiah, said, Ah, behold, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a sign. A virgin shall bear a child. This is 700 years before it actually happened. And, and it's very simple. To Isaiah, he also said, Behold, behold, I tell you things before they happen, so when they actually happen, you will realize that it is me that has said it. Idols can't. People can't know the future. God knows the future. And he says, behold, I tell you things before they happen. So when they happen, you will know that it is me. So here, Gabriel, this, this you know, people say, is there, is there life outside of earth, planet earth? Is there life in other universes or, or, or another universe or other galaxies? I, I don't know, but I know there's other life. There's, a, there's, there's angels. There's seraphim. There's, 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 other, there's other beings that worship God. But here, Gabriel, this angel, is sent to Daniel to tell him that the day, the year, the week that Jesus would come, or, or that he would arrive, and here Gabriel comes to announce to Mary, now it's the time. You're going to be a child. And this is what we called in theological terms in the Bible, it is the incarnation of God. In the temple, when, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he said, oh my goodness, the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How in the world can you come and live in this temple? And can it be, can it really be that you will dwell with man in this temple? He's astounded at the possibility of that. But God had even a bigger plan. Not that he was going to live in some temple, localized himself as such, but actually that he was going to come and be born as a man and come to dwell among us, like Chris shared last week. Uh, oh, sorry, Philip. That's right. Thank you. But Philip said, it's as if we were man trying to speak to ants, and one of us said, I am going to become a man, an ant. But the question is, why the incarnation? Why did he... What was the purpose? And number one, first of all, is to show us that all of his promises are true. The first reason for the incarnation is it was necessary to confirm the promise of the seed of David of the seed of the woman. Sorry, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, it's amazing that they, they covered themselves, they were ashamed, and as God approached, it's amazing that the first thing he pronounced on them was not judgment. The first thing they pronounced on them was a promise. Out of the seed of the woman, I'm going to bring a deliverer. 
He promised, yes, you guys blew it, but I'm going to rescue you. God had a plan to redeem, to restore, and to reconcile all things to himself. And so throughout the ages, that theme of rescue would never leave the Old Testament. In Isaiah 740 B.C., Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive. And in the same time, in Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a child is born. A child was born. But listen to what it, what it says. And a son is given. The eternal son is given. A child is born, but this eternal person is coming. I love this one. Micah 5.2 515 B.C. Son of, uh, it says, uh, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. There's this person coming from everlasting, and he will be born in Bethlehem. This is 500 years before it happened, guys. This is not one book. This is 66 books written in 1,500 years by 40 different authors, separated by time and space. And before Jesus ever came, he will be born in Bethlehem. Saying the promises are true. Because in, Ma in Matthew 1, it says, Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God, according in, in, and also in Luke. The eternal Son of God must also be the Son of Man in order to fulfill God's promises. You will have a Son. And notice, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The Greek word is episkiazo. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and envelop in a haze, and envelop you in a haze of brilliancy. And the Jewish mind could immediately identify with this, the tabernacle, the Shekinah, the Shekinah in Shiloh, the Shekinah in the temple. Sometimes God's presence is so tangible that even Moses couldn't, couldn't enter in. And this is all going back to the promise made to Adam and Eve out of the seed of the woman, a deliverer will come. The fulfillment of the promises to the fathers. Listen, guys, God is a promise keeper. God is faithful. Not always as we think or imagine, not always through easy circumstances. I mean, after all, think of Israel. Think of Naomi when she moved and then she lost her husband and her two children. Think of Job as he lost everything. Think of Daniel as he was raised in the Babylonian Empire. Think of John the Baptist that even himself said, are you the one, Jesus, or should we look for another? 
because it was real. The, 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 the fact that he came was real, but it, he didn't come like John the Baptist thought, and it wasn't as easy as he thought it was, but it was the promise of God revealed because he is faithful, and God is always wiser, but he's always certain, and he's always certain. You know, he never forgets his promises even when we do. And there are objective promises of God that God has made to the church, that God has made to the Jews, that God has made um, um, uh, about death, about resurrection, about his coming back. These are promises that are irrefutable. These things are, are, are happening. They are unstoppable. The promises of the faithful God. And to trust is really hard for us. To trust is really hard. Because we've all experienced letdowns from people. But God is faithful. And the greatest thing that we can learn in our life is to trust in the faithfulness of God. Once in London, I was... Um, London was a trying time for me. I spent three and a half years in London and, and it was, the battle was rough. I, I was sharing the gospel in Leicester Square and I was beaten up by five guys, left me with a black eye. And, uh, and then I had these spiritual battles where funny enough, I had one last night. Last night I had terrible night, terrible night. But it, it was really a rough season in my life. And I called a friend of mine and he said, Raph, you cannot live in what if land. You know that land, right? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if after that happened, that happens? And so you find yourself drowning in what if land. He said to me, we must live in the land of his faithfulness. And it's true, Psalm 37 says, trust God, live in the, dwell in the land and feed, feed. That means food for the soul. Not feed on Instagram and Twitter and, uh, or sorry, X. And, and, um, and all these different, you know, don't feed on the news, don't feed on the very faithfulness of God. But then there are subjective promises that God makes us personally. You know, which is really interesting to me. Sometimes it's just like those things that you're like, could this really be God? And, and like, I, I know you guys are familiar with this, but maybe you're not familiar with this part. But uh, so some people, we were not able to have kids for a long time. Loretta and I, just this uh, 15 years of unable, but it doesn't mean that we didn't think. I mean, there was, there was my mom had a dream. My neighbor across the street had a dream that Loretta was pregnant in winter. In that room over there, somebody had a vision, said, Loretta, one day you will have your own. No, she says, no, I had a vision of you worshiping the Lord with a, with a boy that looked like you. 
And then we, we were in this room, Loretta was in the moms and tots, and she was in her heart thinking, what am I doing here with all these moms with their kids? I don't even have a child. And she is really welling up in tears. And this girl, British girl who's moved to Florida, she looked at Loretta and she says, one day you will have your child. And, and, but she didn't know Loretta was, what was Loretta was thinking. But all these things were these little promises that God was making along the way. Kind of like the people were saying to Mary, you will bear a child. You will blah, 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 blah. And it says that she treasured those things in her heart. And to be quite honest, we treasure those things in our heart, but kind of loosely. And at one point, and I remember, I still remember when we did one of our last treatments of IVF, that Loretta's 40, and I'm thinking, well, well, those dreams and visions were a bunch of baloney. And, and, and if you guys know, I'm quite conservative with things like that. That's probably the only area. There's only that and the call to ministry that are really tied up to things like that. But I remember that was a bunch of baloney from a bunch of people. And then Loretta got pregnant and I kind of got my hopes up and I just kind of thought, oh my goodness, this is just amazing. They're coming true. Guys, they didn't prepare me for this in the hospital. All of a sudden, Loretta began to bleed. I called them. I said, it's an emergency. They're like, there's nothing to do. You just have to stay home. Let it happen. What do you mean, let it happen? you crazy? Yes. No. I mean, let it happen. <laughs> you know, so, but, but it was just, it was just the wildest thing that what I thought that was that little hope that that was the promise being fulfilled, that it literally just disappeared. Loretta miscarried and our hope of having a child, which, and I'm connecting this to a promise, but our hope of having a child literally vanished from beneath me. I'm not one to judge God, to be honest. I just thought to myself, we just didn't hear right. Maybe it was just very enthusiastic people saying nice things. And maybe we just didn't hear right. I mean, I believe the Lord is faithful, but needless to say, I, I got my hopes up. And that uh, we already had a plan to adopt, but we wanted to adopt after we had a biological child. And so we decided, okay, well, that's not going to happen. So let's just go through the adoption process. And that's amazing because um, the vision, if you remember, it was a little, uh, us worshiping with a little boy that looked like us. Now, if there's anything, anyone that's been to this church for a while knows that when the church, like Rick was saying, was facing that way, I was in the front row always with Jonathan in my arms, and we would always be worshiping the Lord together. And when Arden was born, he looked like many things, but not us. <laughs> he looked like many things, but not us, you know? And, and I just thought, okay, well, that's the fulfillment of the promises. 
you know, this is a child that looks like you. But then I kind of thought, well, that's kind of weird. But what about the pregnant ones? By this time, Loretta was 42. And Jonathan's came. He was three. The first time we prayed with him, he's like, what are you guys on about? But after a while, he said, I would like a little brother. This is, and I said, well, unless you pray to Jesus, he's not going to come. And so he began to pray every day that he would have a little brother. And then at 42 years of age, Loretta got pregnant. That is the one prayer that Jonathan regrets the most in his life. <laughs> Why? And I can always say to him when he gets annoyed, it's like, well, you prayed for him. <laughs> you know? But the point that what I'm trying to make here is this. A lot of people in church, including ourselves and friends throughout the world, had stopped praying for us. And we had stopped believing that we would have a child. But it's interesting that God did not forget his promise, even when we forgot. And I say this because it's very important. Now, again, I really emphasize that the, the, the subjective side, because it was a promise, a personal promise. I mean, there's, another, there's other things I would love and I'm going to pray, but God hasn't promised me that I'm not going to get. But this was something that he had said. And, and, but what, what really strikes me about it is that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He is the faithful, promise-keeping God. We don't sustain him by claiming promises. We trust that his promises will come to pass in our life. I love that. I forgot. I thought it was over, but God was not done. And how many times in the nation of Israel was it like that? The Babylonian captivity, it seemed over. And maybe in your life, maybe here today you are discouraged because of certain things. It hasn't been easy. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's, it's uh, you know, Whatever thing in your life, maybe it's maybe it's it's even character things. She's like you wrestle with a certain besetting sin in your life, and you're just like, Lord, I want to be delivered from this. And maybe you have lost hope, but God hasn't. I mean, we we serve a personal God, a God who makes promises and is faithful. So that is one reason why the incarnation was necessary to demonstrate to us that he is a faithful promise keeper. The next thing of the incarnation, it was necessary in order to reveal God as our father in a relatable way so that we could see his eternal love. Now this is interesting because you, you can look at creation and there's a, there's a renowned atheist, I forgot his name, um, but he wrote about 50 books on atheism and why there's no God. Until about a few years ago, he became a theist. And the thing that did it for him was 
He says, it's like, it's like I, wa- I walked into a hotel room that had my favorite chocolate, that had my favorite drink, that had my favorite soap, that had my favorite sheets, that had the perfect pillow. I, as if I walked into a hotel room that was perfectly designed for me. He says, that is what I feel on earth. I mean, think about this. The air that we breathe. The food that we eat. Isn't it beautiful just not only to get energy from food, but actually to taste food. Good Mexican. A good pizza. A good spaghetti carbonara. Good Thai duck rolls. You know, the, 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 the variety, the diversity of flavors on the earth. The fact that we have water to drink. Uh, you, on a thirsty day, you just take a good glass of water and you just, oh my goodness, this is just amazing. The sun. The fact that it's not so close that it scorches us. The fact that it's not too far so it warms us. You know, the moon to give us a bit of light or even to do the tides to clean, to clean the seashore for us so that when we go to the beach, it's not all muggy, you know, just all polluted. It's the tides through the moon that do that for us. You know, it's like the planet that we live in has been perfectly made for us. And, and through looking at creation, we can see his design, we can see his wisdom, we can see his creativity, but we can't really see his character. As a matter of fact, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. But the key thing is, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What is your view of God? Yesterday I was in a conversation, we had coffee and and, uh, and somebody um, else was telling me that um, she, pro- uh, she projected her thought of God uh, from her father, you know? And, and I was, we were just kind of talking about it. it was, I felt the same way. I mean, when I, when I thought of God, I just, I just, there's certain things in my experience with my father. He left when I was five. He, he, uh, he was an alcoholic and, and then he, he came to the island. He gave me a tennis racket and right before he left, I was so excited to have the tennis racket from my dad. I mean, this was like the only thing I had from him. And right before he left, to go back to Germany, he said, um, I've changed my mind. I want my racket back. And so I thought, okay, so I gave it to him. And then there was a g- girl I really liked in, in Austria at the Bible college. And uh, the, the, pr- the director of the school saw that we were kind of struggling. He said, look, take my car, take her for a ride. So we drove to Venice and on the way back, we're, we're kind of, my, my soul is anxious, you know, I'm just kind of struggling. I really want this girl, but uh, I really want God. And what are you going to do, Lord? And I just kind of felt like 
the Lord was giving and the Lord was taking away. He was going to play games with me. You, you, sometimes we have the mindset that God plays tricks. And the Lord spoke to me through reason, through just dealing with my soul, whatever it was. But he, in a sense, he said to me, don't compare me to anybody on earth. I am a father like no other father. And the Bible says this, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as we allow our minds to be transformed by the word of God, we begin to see holy God. Holy meaning, not just that he's unapproachable, that he's unique. There's nobody like him. And so the incarnation was necessary because whatever you think of God, if it doesn't match with the person of Jesus, it's wrong. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever we think of God, if it doesn't match with who Jesus is, it's wrong. Just by mathematics, just by the law of exclusion, if this is true, Therefore, anything that contradicts this must be untrue. And in Jesus, you, you just see his anger. His anger when people are being abused by religious leaders. And he goes to the temple and he goes, this house, this is my father's house. You called him to, you, you, you made it into a den of thieves. And he just begins to turn the tables. And you don't, we don't see, we don't read that. Go, oh my goodness, how extreme he is. We, we just read that and think to ourselves, my goodness, that's so righteous. When we think of Jesus at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What you see is the love of God going to lay down his life for us. When you see him with the people feeding uh, without food and, and the Lord says, do not push him away. Let's feed him. He it says that he was moved in his, in, his, in his gut. He was moved with compassion. And here in Jesus, you see the perfect character of God incarnate. It's incredible. As a matter of fact, it says, I will tell you plainly about the Father. It says the Father, I, I love this one because some people think, okay, the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament or, or God the Father hates me, but God the Son sort of pacifies everything. No, no, no. It's kind of like Arden. Arden is the pacifist in the family. You know, it's like Art, Jonathan gets in trouble. Arden is defending. No. Protect them. You know, but we have that mentality. And Jesus sits on earth and he says, the Father loves you because you have loved me. And he says, he loves you the way he loved me. He loves me. God's, and then to, to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And John being overwhelmed by all these uh, having experienced Jesus, he says, that which we have seen, which we have handled, which we will looked upon concerning the word of life. 
he says this, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Notice this. This is John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And that word declared is the exegemai. Geomai. I don't know Greek. But I know people that do. But listen to this. The Father... He has unfolded the narrative of the Father. Jesus has unfolded the narrative of the Father. Everything you want to know about God, you can know by knowing Jesus. That's two. There's seven. No, I'm not going to go through all of them. Just one more. The incarnation was necessary for a great high priest, the one mediator between God and man. It was necessary for God to come to experience humanity. You know, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and, um, and there's this teaching that is quite interesting, but... So there's the Father, there's the Son, and then there's the Virgin Mary. And then there's prayers being offered to Mary because Mary's a woman and he can truly un she can truly understand what it is that you and I are going through because she's got a motherly heart. And although it seems innocent at first glimpse, Anything that takes away from Jesus is not innocent, is not good. And if I'm made to think that any human being, whether the Virgin Mary, whether the Apostle Paul, whether Peter, is able to identify with what I am going through more than Jesus, and it, and it pushes me away from Jesus, it isn't good. No one understands what it is that you and I are going through on earth like Jesus does. In Hebrews 2.17, it says, In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is a high priest that is able to identify with the things that we are going through. There is a battle. There is a battle for information in everything that you go through in life. Say like me that my kids um, do something and I just lose my temper and I just go at them and 
just to summarize, by the end of it, I am just not very proud of what I did. There's a spiritual battle going on. The devil, he is the accuser. He is the shame master. Look what you did. Can a Christian really do that? Well, you haven't come very far as a Christian, have you? To us, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. To God, you really want this guy? But the Bible says that Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense. He is our high priest. And a priest mediates between God and man. And Jesus is able to say, I went through that. I know what it's like to live on earth. I know what it's like to live alone. I know what it's like to have people like you one day and hate you the next. I know what it's like to not have food as I'm fasting in the wilderness and the devil come and tempt me on my fleshly appetites and say, just turn the stones into bread. I know what it's like for me to have to go to the cross and have to go the difficult way and for the devil to offer me everything if I would just worship him. I know what it's like to be in the cosmic battle that's going on on earth. And there's empathy and there's sympathy. And he's able to identify with what is we're going through. So what I'm trying to say here is that no matter what it is that we are going through, that we are able to go to him and find mercy and grace in time of need. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, he says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Isn't it amazing that God sits on a throne of grace? Not a throne of trickiness, not a thro throne, although he's got all the authority in the universe, not a throne of authority merely, but a throne of grace. And you know, in the old days, when you went to see a king, the scepter was very important. Depending what he did with the scepter, if you dared to approach the king, depending on what, what he thought, the movement of the scepter, it was either a death penalty or life. And to think that with all our sin, with all our messiness, with all our idiosyncrasies, we can actually draw near to a throne, to a place, to a literal spiritual place where Jesus sits and there we can obtain mercy and grace in time of need. Do you know that place? This morning, I had a rough night. I called Andreas yesterday and I said, I've been trying to get a hold of uh, Nina 
for the last days, and I just can't get a hold of her. Nina is the one I told you a few, week, a few weeks ago that was sick in hospital with cancer. And, um, and so Andreas found out from her son that he, she was not doing good. And, and, and so this morning, I just felt like, oh my goodness, I, 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 I couldn't even, we, I kind of wrote Andreas, I said, let's go after church straight over there. And then I felt this morning, no, and, and Jonathan said, I got a drum, so I can't come with you. And I said, okay, I'll just drop you off and I'll go. And I made a beeline for there. And I went to the hospital and there was the, the daughter, the son, the brother, the sister, the, the, the partner, the, um, and a friend. And she was there in an induced coma. And, and all of a sudden, it was unbelievable because just a couple of days ago, I was just, I'd been going every other day to see her and we were just having an incredible time. You see, we went and I prayed with her the first day and she said, Raphael, something's happened to me. Something's happened to me. My, my friends, my partner, my, my children, they're like leaves. And I told them this today. I told the family this. I said, because the, the sister said, what did she say to you? What things did she say to you? when you were with her. And I said, the one thing she said is that you guys were like leaves, not in a negative way, not that you were flaky, but that you could not sustain her. That you could not sustain her. And that after she prayed, she felt like she didn't have to hold on to the leaves anymore. She felt like she was on a tree beneath her, holding her. And the family was like, wow. And we grab hands. And we went to the throne of mercy and the throne of grace. And we prayed and we thanked God for what, what he had done to her, in her. At one point we were, we were talking and I said, you know, Jesus is living in you now. And she's like, very little. She's like, in me? So you mean there's a man living in me now? <laughs> and I was like, well, yes, sort of. Sort of, you know, she's like, really? And then I went the next day, uh, a couple days later, and she's like, Raph, you know, I was so weak. I couldn't make it to the, ba uh, to the bathroom to take a shower. And I thought, but why not? Now we're two. <laughs> and so she got up and she walked right to the bathroom and took a shower. And she says, and I laughed with my mom like I've never laughed before. But you know what, guys? We went to a throne of grace. And listen, she is there today, right now, breathing her last breaths. And in that moment, and around that bed, the children crying, the boyfriend crying, they were going to spend Christmas in a finca, no matter how she was feeling, and everybody's crying. But you know the one that can identify with what she's going through? is Jesus that went to a cross in weakness. And he sat there as they were scourging him and as they were, as they were balking him. And he was in, in, in such weakness that he said, I thirst. And in that loneliness of making our last step through earth, with, which all of us will do, think of your life. It's a vapor. In just a few days, a few weeks, a few months, it's gone. And in that weakness, and in that jump into the abyss, the only one that can help in time of need is Jesus.
but not just help a little, help completely sustains us. You see, we see Jesus going through death, so therefore we lose the fear of death. But he's able to empathize and have mercy on us who are struggling with fear, with anxiety, with temptation. We will, uh, next week, Chris is going to be teaching another session on Advent, and then the following week, we will finish this. It's going to be a two-part series. Uh, guys, when we say that Jesus, when God came to earth, there are reasons for it. There is a, a, a fan of reasons, a multiplicity of reasons, a, a manifold wisdom of God. And let me say this, that the mentality that we are to have as Christians, obviously, is to grow in these things. We don't want to be immature. We want to understand. But as non-Christians, maybe you're here, you're exploring. What you want to do is be like Mary. When Jesus says, when the Gabriel said the Holy Spirit would overshadow come over you. You can't fabricate it. Christianity cannot be fabricated. It must happen to you. The Holy Spirit produces that. But listen, the attitude that we can't have is like Mary. I don't understand how, but let it be to me according to your word I want to know you I don't want to exist I want to live I don't want to grope I want to know I don't want to float I want to be led Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, guys. Let's go back to a place where we say, forget everything else. Let's just focus our attentions in growing and knowing him. He came for a purpose, and the purpose is us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your love, for your grace. And um, my goodness, the fact that we don't have to imagine, the fact that you have revealed yourself through your word, through your son, through your spirit. And Lord, we don't want to play games. Like we've always said at church, real people in a real world with a real God, Lord, and we need you. I pray, Lord, for a generation of people. A start where people say, who are you, Lord? Like Saul. And what do you want me to do? 
And that we, this Christmas, we would experience the working of your spirit in our life, the discovery of your son, the discovery of eternal life. And that in no way, shape, or form, we will be bored by it, but we would see, oh my goodness, this is better than exploring the Himalayas. Father, give life, give prompting, give revelation, Lord. Give repentance to turn away from our egocentric intellectualism to a humble receiving of the revelation that you've provided for us. I tell you things before they happen, so when they happen, you will know that it is me that has said it. Help us to realize that you've left those prophecies in place, those fulfilled promises, so we would raise our ears and say, whoa, what is this? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.